Hi, I'm Nick Warren, and welcome to the iLearn podcast from First Quantum. Each week, we'll bring you stories of leadership to inspire and guide you. From the world of business and academia, from renowned sports people and explorers, to top-ranking generals, each week we'll bring you leaders who have managed through adversity and survived and thrived through challenging times. This week, it's the turn of Brendan Hall, a professional yacht racing skipper who tells us about the most terrifying race of his life, and the leadership lessons he learned as a result. Hey, First Quantum Leaders. My name's Brendan Hall, and I'm on your podcast today to share a story with you. And I want to share a story from my leadership journey and tell you about a particular night where I was the most scared I've ever been in my whole life. Now, I'd skipped some boats in heavy weather before, but nothing like this. This is the worst weather I'd ever experienced at sea, and I was sure by the time this hurricane was over, I was going to have a death or deaths on my conscience. So I want to share the story of what happened that night and some of the things that allowed my team to get through that situation, get out the other side and our big learnings that we took from it. But first to rewind and set the scene a little bit, my name's Brendan Hall. I'm a round the world ocean yacht racing skipper. So I'm a professional sailor by trade. And in 2009, I skippered the winning yacht in an event called the Clipper Round the World Race, which is a 10-month circumnavigation of the world, racing circumnavigation contested on 10 identical racing yachts. But the most important and most unique thing about this race that I competed in was that it's not the world's best Olympic-level sailors that take part. Anyone can sign up and join this race and go on this adventure and, and pay the money and do it. So my crew weren't the world's best people. They were just ordinary people of all differing expectations and differing levels of abilities. So putting them together and creating a team out of them was one of the biggest challenges. But the biggest challenge of this whole race came about two thirds of the way through, and it was our crossing of the North Pacific Ocean. Now, most people think that the Southern Ocean is like the worst in the world. That's where the biggest storms in the worst weather is. But actually, in the Northern Hemisphere in wintertime, it was about mid-February, the North Pacific is just as bad, if not worse. This was going to be the longest leg of this race, coming about two-thirds of the way through the whole journey. It was going to be 35 days at sea, 6,500 nautical miles, and the weather that we were going to experience out there on that body of water be worse than anything we'd seen before. Seas of 20, 25 plus vertical meters, wind of 70, 80, even 100 miles an hour at times, and these huge weather systems, we'd get hit by at least three of them, potentially storm or hurricane force winds. So we left Qingdao in northern China, sailing for San Francisco in the States. We rounded the southern tip of Japan and were out into the Pacific, and the first one of our North Pacific storms is upon us. So imagine what it's like in one of these North Pacific storms. Imagine driving down the motorway in your car at 80 miles an hour through a blizzard. Windscreen wipers on their fastest setting. You can feel the car getting buffeted by the wind. Now imagine opening the sunroof, clipping yourself on, and then climbing out onto the roof of the car. That is the exact feeling of going up the ladder and out the hatch and out onto the deck of this boat in a North Pacific storm. Vile, cold, terrifying. But despite all that, we were still racing and we were very quickly being overtaken by the boat just behind us, who was our arch nemesis in this race. We'd changed down from our big racing sails to our storm sails, which are designed to get you through the worst of the weather. They were carrying on with a bit more sail up and going faster. It didn't take long before the gamble that they were taking didn't pay off anymore and they had an injury on board. 
The boat was knocked down, meaning it was hit on its flank by a wave and rolled over in the water. Top of the mast pushed down underneath the surface of the water. Five tons of water cascaded down the deck and the skipper of that boat, who was up on deck at the time, his legs were washed out from under him, pushed up against the steel fitting and snapped. Tib and Fib pushed out through the skin of his right leg. Really gruesome injury. He was losing blood rapidly. The boat hove to, stopped dead in the water. The Japanese Coast Guard were called out. They were sending out one of their fast patrol ships to evacuate him. They were too far offshore for a helicopter to arrive. And uh, I was called on the sat phone and told to immediately suspend racing, to turn my boat around and get back to their position and rendezvous with them. Because one of my crew on that leg, the crew who signed up, was an accident and emergency specialist doctor. So they were going to be able to render assistance. We turned the boat around and made our way back to them. And by the time that the storm had passed, a plan had come together between the race organizers and all the regulators and all the people who have a stake in this race. Because this had never happened before, by the way. Crew members had been injured and, and evacuated, but never a skipper like this. So the plan that came together between all those stakeholders was that the skipper of that boat would be evacuated, taken back to Japan for medical treatment. And one of the skippers from one of the other boats in this race would be transferred from their boat onto this other boat, and then they would skipper that one plus their own boat the rest of the way across the North Pacific to San Francisco. And the reason that they had ordered me to turn back was because that was their eventual ask of me. To leave my crew, who I'd become hugely attached to, to go off and help this other boat that was in trouble and, and skipper both across the Pacific. It was my rock and a hard place decision, I tell you. I very reluctantly agreed that I would make the transfer. So we brought the boats close together. And after the storm had passed, I swapped across onto the other one and skippered both of the boats the rest of the way. We were no longer racing. We were just sailing to get there safely. But that wasn't really important because the weather that we would see on the rest of this crossing would be worse than anything we would have seen before. And we would be sailing just to survive and get through it. So it was all going well. I was slowly rebuilding the confidence of this team who'd lost their leader. My team was managing itself in the same high-performing way it had done from the start of the race. And it was going well until the day we crossed the international dateline. Smack bang in the middle of the North Pacific. About as far from land as you can get in any direction. And I've been watching this weather system come up behind us on the synoptic charts that were getting emailed to the boat every day. First day we saw it, it was a gale. Next day, a storm. And then this day it was a hurricane and it was right behind us, too big to get out of the way of or, or escape from. Biggest, deepest, low pressure system I'd ever seen on this black and white synoptic chart file. And I remember just sitting there looking at it kind of frozen. And then the training kicked in and I jumped into action and we got as ready as we could be. Both of the boats did. We went through our disaster planning scenarios, all our what-if scenarios. Everyone had their emergency equipment ready. Everyone had their jobs and roles for all the scenarios that might play out. You know, we got as ready as we could be. And then uh, darkness descended on the seascape and this hurricane began to bear its teeth at us. And I'll never forget the waves. These huge waves had picked the boat up from behind. The whole deck had just tipped forward steeper and steeper like the roller coaster going over the precipice of that drop. And then with a shunt bang, you'd begin surfing. 32 tons pitching forward into darkness with no idea what's going to happen at the bottom. And the danger is, is that you slew around sideways and then the wave you just surfed down hits you side on and rolls the boat right over in the water. Snaps the mast off, drowns the crew up on deck. There was the job that the helm, the person driving, and the dead man's helm, who was sat right next to them, was to just keep the long axis of the boat pointing down the wave. That was it. And it was at the height of that storm, that hurricane, that I went to the heads and I was sick. Out of sheer fear, convinced that someone was going to die tonight. Like all my career, I'd just been kind of coasting on good luck. 
and tonight was was finally when the butcher's bill was due. And I came out the heads and the sat phone was ringing. It was the race director, the person in charge of this team ashore that look after the race when it's at sea. And he tells me that one of the other boats in this fleet has had a big accident. They'd set off their EPIRB, which is an emergency beacon. doesn't say what the problem is. It just says, this is where we are. Everyone come to us and help us. The US Air Force was sending a plane out to, to sort of find them. And we were told to divert our course and sail towards this beacon, not knowing what we'd find. And by the time that we got there, we found our competitor yacht, a yacht called California. They had been completely inverted and their mast snapped off, which meant they didn't have a, a rig or sails or a way of pushing the boat forward through the water anymore other than the engine inside. Their problem was that they didn't have enough diesel on board to get the rest of the way to San Francisco, still about two and a half thousand miles. So the plan that came together between all the boats, we did some calculations and worked out that between us, we had just enough diesel. We gave every bit we didn't need ourselves to them to get the rest of the way there. So they fell into formation with us. And uh, now I was in charge of three boats, which I'll be honest with you, wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it had a nice little perk for me. And the, uh, the daily meetings that went out online, they started referring to me as Admiral because I had a flotilla now. So that's what we did. We transferred three and a half tons of diesel fuel to them over about the next 10 or so days until we arrived at San Francisco Bay and uh, California raced on ahead. It was their home port, big media interest. This big flotilla came and escorted them under the bridge into uh, the marina. And my two boats, we were just left sailing, just ghosting quietly. We didn't have a drop of diesel left and the wind had died and we, we just sailed under the central span of that Golden Gate Bridge. And I tell you, I was really overcome, overcome with pride in my, my step crew on my new boat who, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to think I'd rebuilt their confidence to the point where they could onboard their new permanent skipper who'd take them the rest of the way around the world. But I think my proudest moment was a few minutes later when I saw my own boat sail under that same span of bridge. Just my team, my people, ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds, not the world's best sailors. Together, they'd achieve something extraordinary because this had never been done before in any of the previous editions of the race. And these guys had done it and they'd done it on the coldest, meanest, hardest leg. So our reflection on that, when we got back together as a team, we talked about it. One of the reasons that we were able to take on that challenge and one of the reasons, in fact, that I was selected to go across from my own boat and take charge of this other boat was because from the very start of the race, my team had been the most deliberately and strategically empowered and entrusted. I'd given them the most responsibility. I was the leader who had taken the most backward steps as their competence and capabilities grew. And in fact, I was the leader by this stage who was doing the least on deck. I was the least supervisory because I didn't need to be because I'd trained and trusted the people to do it all for themselves. So that was my big learn that allowed us to get through that period of fear and uncertainty and volatility because I'd given people that responsibility, shared that power. And I saw my job not to be that controlling puppet master leader, but actually as someone who's there to create a space, I suppose, and craft a bit of a culture and an ethos where people take ownership and responsibility for themselves. They have the training, they have the support from me but it's about getting performance from them rather than me being the person driving it forward. So I'd urge you, I mean, I, my call to action for you would be to have a little think about your leadership style and how it is now in this period of maybe crisis and certainly uncertainty moving forward. How are you with your teams? And there's the temptation always as a leader to when things feel a bit out of control is to jump in and you want to exert your control. You know, you start micromanaging a bit, the long screwdriver comes out of the pocket and you start sort of tinkering in things that perhaps, you know, you were happy to, to offload to other people before. So just 
check yourself and see how you're behaving, how your leadership style might have changed from you know a couple of weeks ago when uh, when it was more business as usual. But understand that part of your role as a leader, particularly in times like this, in times of crisis, in times of fear, when people are feeling that way, is to be that person that creates a space for other people to step up. So I hope that's been valuable for you. All the best. Stay well, stay safe through this uh, next couple of months. All the best to you and your families. That's it for this week's episode of the iLearn podcast. iLearn is First Quantum's new corporate university and the full iLearn system will be available later in the year. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this new podcast series. This episode of iLearn has been produced by Fresh Air Productions, and everybody involved in the podcast has given their time for free. For future episodes, you can find the iLearn podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Thanks for listening. Thank you.